This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hey now, and welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm Mike Carlin, your host, and today I'm going to share with you my conversation with Natasha Daniels. But before I do, I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all socials, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And you can find us at Uncorking a Story on all of those platforms. And in particular, I'd love it if you could subscribe to our YouTube channel, as it's been a great growth vehicle for the show and a fun way for me to interact with the audience. Of course, please rate, subscribe, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcasts. All right, enough about that. I had a really deep conversation with Natasha Daniels about how to help children process grief, particularly when you yourself are also grieving. I don't want to give away too much of Natasha's story, but I do want to reflect on something that we talked about that you might find useful in your own writing, which is ways in which writing has therapeutic properties. Now think about it. When you're writing, it's really some quality alone time with just you and your thoughts. And you know, you're really focused on what you're writing. And when you're that focused on on one thing in particular, you're basically living in the moment because you can't really be worrying about what's for dinner when you're writing dialogue or exposition. You know, I suppose you could, right? But your writing will suffer and, you know, maybe you'll accidentally free associate, you know, a recipe for marinara sauce in the middle of a chapter. And, you know, come to think of it, maybe that's why all those recipes were included in uh, those Red Sparrow books, if you read them. I always thought that was kind of weird. At the end of each chapter, there was like a recipe for like borscht. Um, but I digress. I, I like to think writing is the ultimate guided visualization because um, like when I write, I'm literally seeing what I'm writing as I'm writing it. And in that way, it's like meditative for me. And it's a great way to get to know myself. And sometimes it, it scares me when I write something strange. You know, it's like, where, where did that come from? Um, <laughs> where did that idea come from? That was dark. 
<laughs> I didn't realize I was that dark, but it happens. And it's a good way to get to know yourself, even if you're writing fiction. Um, you know, you can also turn to writing as a way of helping to process your emotions. You know, why do you think journaling is so popular? You know, a lot of writing coaches say journal every day. A lot of therapists say journal every day, too. Um, there's there's definitely a link there. I, I don't think I'm alone in believing this. So, you know, again, think of writing as uh, as therapy and you might be surprised with what comes out uh, from your subconscious. All right. Today's guest is Natasha Daniels. Uh, she turned to writing after her husband passed away suddenly, leaving her widowed with three young children and her kids were all expressing their grief in different ways. So Natasha literally then wrote the book on grief and children. And, um, you know, it's really her story to share. So we'll uh, we'll let her uncork that momentarily. Natasha Daniels is an anxiety and OCD child therapist and has published multiple books, including How to Parent Your Anxious Toddler, Anxiety Sucks, A Teen Survival Guide, Social, Social Skills, Activities for Kids, and It's Brave to Be Kind. She also hosts the AT Parenting Survival Podcast and has a YouTube channel, Ask the Child Therapist. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about her latest book, The Grief Rock, a book to understand grief and love. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Natasha. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm going to write a book called How to Butcher an Introduction. That's going to be <laughs> the next the next book I write. But the, I can go author it. What I love to say is post-production... Uh, uh, is magical. Mm -hmm. um, but thank you. Thank you for joining uh, me here uh, this evening, Tasha. I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? Uh, it probably starts um, back in 2015, when I wrote How to Parent Your Anxious Toddler. I had That was my first jump into writing. And it kind of got me into uh, the online world. Sorry, my eyes are burning for some reason. And and it got me into helping parents globally and and writing and working with publishers and doing all that fun stuff was my first introduction. So was it fun? I mean, you say all that fun stuff or are you being uh, or do I detect a little bit of sarcasm there? I'm being a little facetious. Yeah, it was that my first book was uh, dense. It was clinically dense. It was um, it was definitely a process that I wasn't used to. So the least fun of all the books I've written, for sure. Well, that's. I want to dive into your background a little bit. So, um, you know, clearly you are a therapist, a child therapist. What what sort of brought you into that career and kind of where were you in life when you said, you know what, I want to spend the rest of my life doing this? <laughs> I don't know if I ever said that, but it actually was like my private practice was kind of quiet and I am just a go-getter, I guess. I can't handle any downtime. And so I was like, I need a plan B. And you know, what books are out there? Um, where's the gap? And so it really was just more of, I need to do something different in my career. And I found that there was no like toddler support in mental health. So that was an easy, easy thing. Um, but then once I did write that book and I created an online world, then that buzz started to happen where I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. You can have a, a big impact, small, you know, bigger than this one-on-one -on -one session that I'm having. And so uh, that opened up my eyes to, to a different world. Yeah. When, when did you decide in general to, to become a therapist? Uh, that goes way back. Uh, 
I was a middle child. So, you know, I always was a therapist, you know, <laughs> and so it started from that, from birth. But I think progressively, um, there was a lot of mental health issues in my family. And I think from early on, I wanted to be a therapist because I wanted to fix my dad. Um, and, and they accidentally kept putting me with kids. And so eventually I was like, all right, I love kids. I'm going to be a child therapist instead. So it started with that. And then I had three kids. And because obviously mental health issues are genetic, um, I birthed three kids with anxiety and OCD, which then became ironic because I'm an anxiety and OCD child therapist. People think I'm, I did that for my kids, but it actually was uh, the chicken came first. So, right. Right. Uh, well, they say, you know, the God, God or the universe gives you what you can handle. And, and apparently, uh, you know, the, the, the great yep. source out there thought you could handle. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> or has a sense of humor. One or the other. Well, that, that's true because uh, I have triplets and there is oh, no, boy. um, you know, there is, there's no bigger, uh, laugh than, than the fact of me going from zero babies to three babies when I was like 27 years old. It's like, oh my gosh. That's just cruel. You know, <laughs> it was, you know what? It was cruel. It was, um, I like to say, I like to say like somewhere the government could learn, you know, if, if the government really is into torture, right? Like we've, <laughs> we've heard, we've heard the rumors, you know, sleep deprivation and screaming babies are like maybe two un underutilized torture tactics. I mean, sure, there's waterboarding and you know, I hate to make light of such things, but um, the sleep deprivation one has after raising multiples, you know, while not having any other kids to compare them to uh, is um, is something that can be con considered traumatic. Oh, um, yeah. And easier, but, uh, An easier torture device for sure. 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 Um, well, I do, I do want to talk about the, the grief rock. So tell me, what, what can you uh, share with us about your latest book? Uh, well, it, it wasn't, I didn't write it because of my expertise. This one actually happened because of a personal experience where my husband suddenly passed away at 42. And um, because I am a child therapist, I just went to the books, you know, I'm into like bibliotherapy, I write books. And so, uh, my youngest, I had three kids at the time, still actually have three kids, um, nine, 11 and 18. And that was about three years ago. And my youngest in particular was having a really hard time. And I was just trying to find her different books. And there was a, literally a pile on my, on my counter and she was getting angry or she's a feisty kid. She was just like, this is stupid and this doesn't work. And, and so eventually I was like, okay, I just have to use my therapy skills and and help her. Um, grief was my least favorite thing to ever work on in therapy because I'm I'm solution focused, I'm skill based. Like that's why I like anxiety and OCD. And so grief to me was like, well, what do I do with grief? You know, like you can't fix that. Um, and so I had to to try because my my child needed it. And I started to just talk to her about like, okay, this boulder has come and like cracked our house open. We've got this rock. And we have to learn how to carry it. And it's hard to eat. It's hard to sleep. It's hard to do anything. People stare at you because you're carrying this rock. And I just use this metaphor um, out of survival, really. My brain wasn't working at all. And she picked up on that really quickly and started to talk about it. You know, like, oh, mom, my rock is too big today. I can't talk to you. Or my rock showed up at school, mom. And it was so embarrassing. And it became this language that we used for survival. And I really related to it myself. And then about a year later, when like the cloud you know, kind of dispersed a little bit and the grief fog was lifted. I was like, I should write down like our conversation. So I started to like journal them and I had journaled them. So I went back and looked at, um, I was journaling everything because I had like 
widow fog, I guess that's a thing. And so I was, and I'm not a journaler, but I was writing everything down every day. And so I went back and I actually found um, an area where I wrote like literally my conversation. So I just took that, sent it to my editor, uh, my publisher rather, from previous books. And they're like, yep, that's a great book. And it's a very simplistic story about how this, this unfolded. Yeah, but I, you know what I love about it is you're taking something that so many people can relate to and you're taking your pain and your grief and your desire to find, you know, I guess white space in the marketplace, but also helping other people with it. I mean, not just helping your your own children who are suffering, um, but you're helping other people who you don't know who are who are going through the same thing. Now, I, I'm stepping in, I'm trying to step into your shoes a little bit because while I didn't have a spouse who passed away, my older brother passed away this summer and he of course had a C what well, not of course had a spouse he had a spouse and he had two young kids and you know i just remember i remember sort of the day he you know we kind of had a, a feeling that this was going to be the day at least i had a feeling that this was going to be the day and and his kids came to to see him in the hospital and you could tell that they were saying goodbye and it was just, it was really one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen in my life, just to see them together, you know, the four of them together, you know, as a family on the bed, perhaps for the last time, sobbing and hugging. And, um, and of course, he, he did pass later that, you know, evening, afternoon. And, you know, it's, it's still pretty fresh. I mean, that was only in June. Um, yeah. But just kind of watching that family and how they've sort of, adjusted, you know, to, to this event that happened, what, five months ago now. Um, I know I'm kind of babbling about that a bit, but, but it, it strikes me because I, I am very close with my sister-in-law. Um, you know, you're helping your daughter go through this process, your kids go through this process. Um, but you're grieving too. So how do you, how do you manage that? Like, how do you take care of yourself while you're trying to take care of your children as well? It is really hard. Um, I didn't have any friends and my family didn't live locally and, and my husband's family didn't live locally. And so, uh, and I mean, no one really talks about how grief hits you physiologically. And I don't know if your sister-in-law is experiencing this because really five, six months into it is early days. I mean, you don't feel like a human. I mean, for a lot of us, you don't feel like a human until, you know, a year has passed even. And then some people say the second year is worse. I didn't really think that, but, um, I certainly don't remember even being awake for the first six months. And um, and so it impacts your sleep and your ability to eat, your ability like to even have a coherent sentence. I couldn't read anything. So I couldn't really work because I couldn't read or communicate on any any significant level. And so I think the, the first thing I had to do was um, anchor myself because really the scariest part was not being able to think, which I know sounds crazy. I mean, all the other things are obvious, you know, you don't have a husband who is going to be your partner. You're all by yourself. Like there's so many layers of, of fear that pop up, but I needed to anchor myself for my kids because if I spiraled out of control, which was really tempting and uh, I had to really resist that, I really wouldn't be able to be there for my kids. So, you know, the first step was just clearing everything. I must've sent a million emails being like, can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. Like I just cleared my entire, for three months, I, I did nothing. But um, just be present and take care of myself and take care of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, 
you know, just again, speaking from the, the point of view of, you know, he was my brother, not my spouse, but I, I couldn't get out of bed for three months. Like I, he and I were extremely close and I like to say we still are very close, but, um, you know, I just, I can't imagine, um, you know, just losing a spouse and, and then having to, um, not to bring it down, but I mean, you know what the experience was like and just, yeah. just kind of get through with the family. And then, and I imagine, you know, grief isn't like an on off switch where, you know, a certain amount of time passes and then boom, it goes off and everybody is, is well again. D did you find with your own children and even with yourself that it might just hit you at odd times or, or there were some odd, I mean, I know the term trigger is overused, but just unexpected triggers that that would sort of you know um to bring some darkness in yeah and that i think that was another part of the grief journey that was so overwhelming because i'm naturally an anxious person and i love control i love to feel like i'm in control and my kids are anxious and they like to feel control too and i feel like with grief it can it can pop up and like clobber you. <laughs> Sounds like, like a weird thing to say, but it just feels like it clobbers you um, unprovoked. It's almost like a, a jump scare. And so that that was really hard to handle for, for me, who is not a crier. I'm not a public crier for sure. Um, and, you know, just standing there in the grocery store and someone has some freckles on their arm. And it just reminds me of my husband's arm with freckles, like something so minute. And all of a sudden, I'm not sure if I can stand there anymore. And I'm not sure if I can wait to be checked out and I need to leave. And that overwhelm um, impact my kids too, where they would just be like in math class. And then somebody would say something that reminded them of their dad. And, you know, my daughter in particular would have to go down to the counselor and talk. And so that was part of the language that I would use with her was this rock is sometimes a pebble and sometimes it's a boulder and it kind of just morphs on you. And all of a sudden, you're just under this rock and, and people don't know that, you know, they're still eating dinner with you or they're still on the playground with you. And you're like, you're under this rock. And, um, and that, and that's even more painful because no one really knows that pain that you're in, in that moment. Yeah. I imagine too, like, I, I know people have, yeah, I mean, this is my belief anyways, like people have the best of intentions when they come up to you and, you know, they say, I'm sorry, or is there anything I can do? Um, or just offering, you know, some kind of support. But what do you find is most helpful, you know, from from the, the point of view of somebody who's, you know, accepted um, those condolences? Like, what what's the right way to approach somebody who is grieving and going through that type of of loss? You know, I didn't realize how many things were offensive, you know, until I was grieving. And I was like, wow, there's so many offensive things that people inadvertently say to you. And, and it was kind of highlighted in the grief groups too. You know, saying he's in a better place or, you know, it's, you're lucky you had that time with him or good thing you're young, you could, you know, marry again or, um, you know, just those things that people want you to feel better. And so they'll say things to make you feel better and they'll say things to your kids to make them feel better. And or, or I can't imagine what that's like. I'm so glad. I mean, I've been married for 30 years. I couldn't imagine losing my husband. You know, like that doesn't make me feel better. Um, so I think, ironically, the simplistic response, the, just the empathetic response of, I'm so sorry that you're having to go through this pain. I'm so sorry you're having to. I mean, just validating someone's struggle without trying to fix it or a platitude. 
that goes a long way. And it really is awesome when people are like, how can I help you? And they follow up with a legitimate offer. Um, I think it's very easy for us to say, um, what can I do for you? Well, you obviously can't bring my husband back. I mean, or your brother back, right? I mean, it's, and sometimes they'll say, I know it's a stupid question, but what can I do for you? And, but if there's a, a genuineness behind it, um, especially if you're a widow and you're, you're flying solo, tap into that. I've learned that. Um, and I am like a very proud person who will not ask for help. And I learned that in order to help my kids, I'm going to have to tap into help. And so people would say, let me take your kids for you. And my normal healthy self would be like, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's fine. My grieving self was like, what time? <laughs> <You know? All> right. <laughs> well, let's schedule it because you need that support. Um, and, and people are willing to help. They want to help. They want to do something because they feel hopeless themselves. Yeah, I know those sort of those, um, you know, well, I'm praying for him or, you know, oh, it, it must be so hard. It doesn't really go that far. And, and again, I, I know that there or at least I believe that there is some kind of positive uh, intention behind those. Um, but I think you're right. You know, somebody just saying, hey, what what is there anything I, po- I could possibly do for you right now? Um, and, and, and backing it up with with some kind of action. Um, and just showing empathy, I think, you know, you mentioned is, is key and, and that works with adults. What, what's a good approach for kind of approaching children who are going through the grief process? Cause you know, I, again, I, I look to, to my, to my young nieces who I love very much. And I remember just observing people coming up to them and then just saying, Oh, you know, how are you doing? And then just like, you know, letting it hang there. And it's like, well, the real answer to how I'm doing is I'm not doing pretty, you know, uh, it fucking sucks, right? I mean, that's probably what they want to say um, yeah. because it does suck, you know? Um, but how? what's what's a good approach of, of sort of having to, not having to, but comforting, you know, children who are grieving? You know, I was always impressed with people who like would have a genuine question or interaction with my kids. Um, because you start to feel like a victim, you know, and it's embarrassing. You feel like um, you're walking around and people are like, oh gosh, there they are, you know, and what do I say to those kids? And so, I mean, my kids had some really bad reactions where kids didn't want to be their friend anymore or people didn't know what to say to them. I saw, you know, coaches and people that interacted with them didn't, you know, stumbling, not knowing what to say. And really just being able to talk about their, the lost person, you know, saying, um, you know, I know I'm sure that, you know, it's been hard without your dad. How, how have you been doing? You know, and, and asking them a genuine question, or if you know the person that passed away, bring them up. You know, I think sometimes people are also like, let's not bring them up, you know, and it's actually a lot of times when you're grieving, kids want to talk about that person that they lost. They want to feel like they're still alive and they're still around them. And for relatives to bring them up, I think is is, is a gift on some level. I, I, I do want to pause our conversation, you know, talking about grief and just look at that sign that's over your uh, right shoulder. I love you to the moon and back, which is something my mother would always say to, to me whenever we'd be getting off the phone. And she would always say to my, my children as well. Do, is there a story behind why that's on, on the wall behind you? Uh, no, I think I got it on sale and I loved it. <laughs> 
I wish I had a better story for you, Mike. But <laughs> that, I think that's a good enough story, though, to, to be honest, just the fact that, you know, the, you know, I so I always look at, you know, as an author, I always look into everything and overanalyze everything. So I'm always wondering, like, hey, what about those flowers on your other shoulder? Any any story behind those? Or do you just like flowers? <laughs> too? Not, I have a good story. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Probably the same day that I bought that one. Uh, you know, I, I'm, and I'm one of those people like I want to convey a message without like I want a subliminal message when I'm, you know, I've, I have a YouTube channel. And so I've wanted something that was giving someone a positive message during my video. So that's why I found that. Yeah. Well, it, it worked and it uh, spurred a conversation or at least a question. Um, what, what do you hope people get, uh, get out of this book? Um, what, um, you know, say somebody goes to the store and, and buys it, reads it. What, 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 what do you want the main takeaways to be? You know, ironically, I really wanted this book to be an adult coffee table book. I mean, that was my vision for it. It was going to be this beautiful art book because like I keep saying, my brain wasn't working and I know people just need simple words to process. Um, no publisher was going to publish an adult coffee table book for grief. <laughs> just, I guess it wasn't resonating. Maybe one day if this book does really well, they'll be like, you know, okay, we'll revisit. But I really want people to have a resource that gives them concrete tools when their kids are grieving to say, Here's like a preview. Like my my daughter has celiac, so we have to go to the uh, the, ho- the children's hospital like periodically to get her scoped or something like that. And they always have like a kid social worker that comes in, and I'm always so impressed with the the level of detail they go into. You know, this is the you know this is the thing we're gonna put over your face, and let's try it. And I mean, like 45 minutes, and I'm like, wow, that's commitment before the procedure. You know, the 10 minute procedure, and I feel like my book is that. It's like it's a procedural explanation of what you're about to experience or what you're experiencing. And it normalizes it. So when I know that I am like being crushed by a rock, I know, oh, you know, I know that that was supposed to happen. And when I'm feeling happy and overwhelmed and fun, I know that that's going to happen too. And when people are weird to me, I understand that because I got kind of a preview of all that in a book. And I just think it normalizes the experience. And that's my hope is that people will see that as another resource. My secret hope is that maybe people proactively will read it as well, educate kids in schools, educate their own kids as just, you know, we have books on kindness. I wrote one. We have books on, you know, social skills. Let's have a book on grief because one out of 12 of you are going to experience it, which is pretty sad. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, you're right. I mean, it, it it was one of those white space opportunities. And now I know that I'm just like taking this out of a uh, a deep conversation and thinking about the marketing of it. But um, you know, it is it does fill a need. And you know, like why not teach about grief and about loss and address these things? Um, it it kind of brings me back to the days of. Do you remember like watching like old sitcoms and and every now and then they'd have the very special episode. You know, tonight on a very <laughs> special family ties, you know, yeah. and then there would be like there would be an episode like where Alex was grieving the death of his friend. Um, yeah. And now I might be dating myself a little bit here. But, <laughs> well, I'm right um, there with you. So I'm like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> but why not? I mean, why not have, you know, why not address this in, in, in a way that's a little bit more you know, direct towards towards kids? Because you're right. I mean, you, know, you say one out of 12, we're going to experience it. You know, it's um, that's a sobering statistic. Yeah. And that is an immediate family member, you know, a parent or, or a sibling. Um, that's not grandparents or, or anything outside of that. So yeah, when I saw that statistic, I thought that is really crazy because I feel like we sanitize grief um, 
And so people are kind of like the plague when they are grieving, because it's especially if it's like a, a, a parent or a brother or sister of yours it, and you're a kid, it's like, whoa, that's not supposed to happen. That's out of order. That's And, it, and so people don't know how to respond to that. And if we normalized it more, we talked about it more because it is impacting people. It wouldn't be such a taboo, scary thing to talk about. Yeah, I think we, we did a good job. I say we. Uh, others have done a good job normalizing things that were not talked about, right? So, you know, in the 80s into the 90s, it was normalizing things that were taboo in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and you know, why not? Why not make, you know, grief, grieving, um, grief and, and, and children who are grieving something that's a little bit more more normal, just so it isn't as foreign. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, take another break from talking about grief. And I always like to get to know my guests a little bit more by asking some questions around pop culture. And Uh-oh. I'm curious. Uh, I know everyone gets nervous here, but uh, these questions are not hard and you're not being graded. And if you were being graded, I'd be nice and great on a curve. <laughs> but um, I'm curious, when you were growing up, Natasha, did you have any favorite TV shows? Anything you like you, you like to watch growing up? Oh, my gosh. It's going to tap into my memory. Well, I did like Family Ties. So I did watch that. Well, that was an easy one because I, I kind of fed it to you a few minutes ago. <laughs> no, I like the softball. I know I really did like Family Ties. Um, I like Friends, but that's not back. That's not going all the way back to the '80s. But I did like Friends. I guess that's '90s. Um, and I'm not. I'm, we're going back to the '70s for me. So we're going way back. I'm a, I'm a big fan of '70s TV. So what do you got? Brady Bunch. <laughs> of course. Do you know how many? I mean, 302 episodes of the show, or probably a little bit more at this point. Brady Bunch has come up at least 50 times. <laughs> it's a classic. At least 50 times. It is a classic, but, you know, and I always want to know, like, what is it about the Brady Bunch that that really ha- gravitate? You know, what, why do people gravitate to that? And I've heard so many different answers, but I'd be curious about what your answer is. Why the Brady Bunch for you? Well, Fantasy Island, too. I think I actually like Fantasy Island better. But I, I don't, I feel like there was not a lot of options, to be honest. I feel like... You know, and you you yeah. had to watch what was on TV. You didn't get to, you know, pick. It wasn't a menu. Go to Netflix. I feel like Brady Bunch was always on. I don't. I honestly don't think there was anything magical about the show. I mean, there was four of us growing up, so it felt kind of like we were about half the Brady Bunch. So I could relate to that. <laughs> but otherwise, it was to, just killing time. <laughs> to me, I, like I think about it, and this is an answer somebody gave me, and I thought it was a good one, which is, you know, divorce was such a taboo subject, and um. You know, you you look at the Brady Bunch, and you know it's, clearly it's about a blended family. You know, both both families, um, you know, originally had spouses, previous spouses, and they came together, and it was like one big happy family, and it kind of normalized something maybe that was, uh, you know, not not considered you know normal or something to be proud about back back in the day. So that's that was yeah. always my take, and. Um, plus, they always had good guest stars on the Brady Bunch. You know, you got your <laughs> Davy Jones every now and then, or I believe a, jo- a Joe Namath came on once. So that is true. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't let Fantasy Island slip by though, because that was one of my favorite shows too. I mean, it was like Love Boat. Fantasy Island was like, I mean, to <laughs> me, at almost fifty years of age, that would be an ideal night in, right? Being oh, yeah. able to to put my feet up, have a fire in the fireplace, you know, watch Captain Stubings, and then watch you know Mr. Rourke would be just a fantastic night. Um, you know, I, yeah. when I get home this weekend, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Good luck finding that. But yeah, I guess you can find anything. 
Well, where there's a will, there's a way. That's what that I always true. say, Natasha. What about music? What did you like to listen to growing up? Uh, I was I went through a like goth phase in the '90s, so I was Nine Inch Nails and <laughs> Fugazi. Oh, yeah. You know, I was all like hardcore, hardcore back in the day. <laughs> Do you remember the band in the '90s? Now they were a regional band, and I went to school in Connecticut, um, not far from from Boston. So this is a regional band out of Boston. But do you remember a band called Letters to Cleo? I don't. No, I feel okay. like I'm uncool. No, no, no. You're totally cool because they really were just like a regional like New England band. But my daughter, so I, you know, the, the triplets are 21 now. They, She really got into them. And uh, because they were, she, the, the lead singer was in the movie 10 Things I Hate About You, which uh, has like cult status now with um, my kids generation. And mm-hmm. um Anyway, the long story short there is that we're going to see this 90s alt oh, band cool. uh, this weekend in Boston. So I'm very excited about that. That's a fun bonding thing. I know. I know. I'm looking at the, we We gave everybody the opportunity to go and, and uh, no one else <laughs> raised their hand. So it's just me and me That's and Maggie fine. hanging out. Um, what about writing? In, in what ways do you consider writing to be therapeutic, if at all? Uh, I didn't find writing any of my past books really therapeutic. Um, actually, a, a week before my husband died, I had finished a memoir on my social anxiety and wasn't planning on writing about grief. And so that's actually ironically being published in September. And that was incredibly therapeutic because um, that was like, that's my story and weaving in, you know, my own therapeutic approaches for that. And I thought that was really cathartic and it's actually given me the writing bug. I'm like, okay, I could be a memoirist. Um, is that a thing? Can I write more than one memoir? You know, maybe I'll just take a road trip and I'll write about that. But um, yeah, that really made me interested in writing again in just more of a storytelling sort of way. Yeah. Do you ever use writing exercises with any of your clients? Uh, well, I don't. I close my practice after my husband died. So now I just do like global okay. resources for parents who are raising kids with anxiety and OCD. Um, but I didn't. I wasn't. I was always afraid to even say journal because I knew that I hated journaling. And so I didn't want to be that like stereotypical therapist that was like journal, you know, or do this. So I'd always give them like options, like make a video or record yourself or, you know, something that was a little bit more tech savvy. But now I'd really do see where it's very cathartic to write if, if someone's really into writing. And two more questions for you. These do get progressively harder. Um, not to freak you out at all, Uh-oh. but if you could, um, if you could write a letter to the younger Natasha, this is my letter to me question or the dear younger me question. Um, what would you, what are some of the things you might tell a younger Natasha uh, about what the, the, her future life is going to be like, and how would you reassure her um, somehow? Well, it's funny that you say that because my memoir is all about that. I have therapy sessions with my younger self um, throughout until I catch up with me and then it's weird. But um, I think I would tell myself, depending on what age, you know, because I, you know, there was a lot of chaos in my childhood. And so my older than seven year old self, I would tell her that I'm more resilient than I think, and that I am I'm a strong person because I think it, it's not until recently that I started to believe that. Like I, I can do hard things. I am resilient. So I would, I would remind her that she's going to go through a whole bunch of horrible stuff. Um, 
buy a lot of toilet paper in 2020 and, you know, warn her of some things and then let her know, you know, that life is impermanent and don't hold on too tight, but that's okay. Cause you always have yourself. And that's something I've had to tell myself. I, I won't disappear. I have me. Um, and that's really the only thing we can guarantee in life. And that that's not a sad thing. That's just a reality to in, embrace if you are comfortable with your own company. And the last question could be the hardest one, but you tell me, have you found in just over the past few years, kind of going through your own grief journey, have you found any silver linings to it? Have you have you found anything you can point to and say, you know, going through this has been a blessing because, and I know that word blessing is is maybe too big of a word, but has there been anything positive that's come out of you know, your experience of grief? There has, and I think people don't want to hear that because it makes them uncomfortable, but you're going to continue living. And I think for my kids and I, we realize that, that tomorrows are not a guarantee. So we got really tight. Um, I closed my private practice. Uh, I do online stuff so I can take a laptop and, and go anywhere in the world. And we started traveling. Um, we've been to Bali, we've been to Istanbul, we've been to Europe, Greece, um, Hong Kong, like just in the last three years and realizing that like we have to live, really soak up our life right now. And so, and I've become so much more focused on my relationship with my kids and my parenting, not getting lost in the details of life, uh, trying to like really soak up and have gratitude for every day for my coffee, for like, you know, just little, not getting hung up on the little things like, oh, there's traffic or there's, of course we all do, but bringing it back and having that awareness, um, which I think having that really close loss has gifted me with, because I recognize that, you know, this can all go away. I don't want to take anything for granted. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. And I want to give you the opportunity to let the audience know where they can find out more about you. So Natasha, do you have a website or any social media handles that you can share with us? I do. Um, all my work is for anxiety and OCD for kids. And so you can find all that at AT Parenting Survival. So atparentingsurvival.com, um, AT Parenting Survival on social media. Um, the Grief Rock, which because I obviously don't really create a lot of grief stuff, is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And so you can go to natashadaniels.com slash grief, and I'll take you to Amazon so that you can learn more and see my other books too that are completely unrelated. <laughs> Very good. Well, I will put all of that in our show notes. So those of you who are listening can just easily go to the show notes and, and find all the links uh, for Natasha that will be there. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for stopping by and corking a story and letting me uncork yours. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.